Today's readings are from John chapter 1, verse 29, and Revelation chapter 5. Let's start with the verse from John's Gospel. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Revelation chapter 5, the whole chapter, buckle in. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represented the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, they had gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. And I looked again. And I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, and they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. Today, we are starting to walk towards Easter in a new series called God in the Chaos. Now, the title of the series is actually inspired by this 15th century icon, which I'm going to show you now. Now, icons like this are such gifts to the church. They're, they're actually more than artwork. They're not just meant to be looked at. They're, they're actually meant to be read. And I want to draw you to reading something about this scene. I want you to look at the chaos. Now, if we were to read it from right to left and left to right, there are multitudes of people and groups. There's soldiers and Pharisees, political leaders, disciples, and there's family members. There are thieves. There's the crowd. Some of the people are smug. Some of them are angry and hostile. And other people are weeping. They're grieving. Some are hiding. There's a range of emotions being portrayed 
here. And if we were to read it up and down, down and up vertically, there are multiple dimensions of reality. There's the physical and there's the spiritual. There are the heavens, there's the earth, and down the bottom there, there's the darkness of Hades. And there is a bridge between all of it, a cross. There are demons, there's angels, there's the saints, there are the dead. And in the center, in the center we have Christ. He is set in this disordered picture. Actually, let's just rethink that for a second. Here we have God in the chaos. Now, just imagine that same artwork pulled forward 500 years to today. What would it include, I wonder? Like, What, what would be the chaos of the scene? Now, if I was to imagine a more modern scene of that icon, I think it would have some things like this. It would have the tanks and the armies of conflict of the war in Ukraine. I think it would have polarized politics. It would have tribal the, uh, ideological groups duking it out over their agendas and who is right. I imagine the church, capital C, uh, globally, it would be fragile, disconnected after two years of disruptions and life within a pandemic. I can see people in fear, people in, with anxiety, people who are agitated and uneasy, concerned about this growing living costs that we're finding ourselves in, what's next for our nation, um, the reports of a new COVID variant called Deltacron, or the desire to regain control over our lives and get back on track after two years of deferred plans and disruption. It would have those who are suffering from addictions, from moral failings, those who are encountering broken relational lives. It would have those who are bitter, it would have those who are angry towards others, and it would have the victims of those addictions, those failings, that brokenness and that anger. And then it would have a bunch of people on their smartphones, not even noticing most of that scene and just watching some TikTok video or reading through a Reddit thread. It's quite a mess of a scene to behold. And we behold it every day. We, we may be sick of it all. We may have grown numb to it, but it's there. It's there nonetheless. I created that scene that I've just told you about from real events of the last three days. I only had to look three days deep to find all those things. It's around me and I bet it's around you too. All that to say, there is a scene of chaos around us every day, of things that are not right in our world. And there's things that are not right in us. And this Easter, we need to discover again the God who has placed himself in the scene of chaos. Now to discover this, today, let us start by recounting the Easter story and a resulting truth about who Jesus is that comes from that story. So just allow me to tell you the literal story found in all four Gospels of the accounts of Jesus's life. And for the sake of time, allow me just to paraphrase it and to retell it kind of from the hip. Um, the story goes like this. There was a Jewish man, skin and bone, no one actually too special actually, and he had spent three years traveling around Galilee, Judea, and Samaria, and he'd been speaking of a new reality in the world that was called the kingdom of God. It wasn't the kingdom of Rome, 
It wasn't the kingdom of the Pharisees. It was a new thing. And he had followers, some people who were following him, and he had started to trend amongst some local people. He was doing miraculous things. There was all sorts of sort of buzz around him as things were happening. Radical things were happening around him. And this new thing that this man was speaking about and leading into, it was actually red hot heresy. It infuriated the religious leaders of the day so much, it crossed so many boundary lines that these leaders hatched a plan to kill that man. And they managed to get to one of his insiders, a friend of this man, one of his followers. His name was Judas. And they bribed him, hand the man over, and he did. They went and got him, and they dragged him in front of the governing authorities. And the governing authorities had him sentenced to death. And so this man was then inserted into the process of a common Roman death penalty of the day. It's called crucifixion. He was whipped. He was beaten. And he had to carry his own death sentence of a cross through town up to a hill. And there he was hung on that cross. Nails were pierced through his hands. Nails were pierced through his feet. And it was stood up and it was suspended for all of those around afar to see the silhouette of this on the horizon. Painfully breathing his last breaths. Dying and covered in his own blood and his own defecation and his own sweat. This man, when he died, he was then buried. He was put in a tomb. A stone was rolled over the entrance. And then on the third day of him lying in that tomb, some women came to prepare his body and they found the tomb empty and his tomb clothes were just sitting in his place. And this dead man, he, he started to reappear mysteriously to his followers, revealing himself, not like some ghost, but as a resurrected body. That's the literal story. Grounded in history, real events recorded in the accounts of the Gospels, found in history, found in earthy locations. So what's the big deal about that story? What's even powerful about that? What does it actually mean? Well, to answer, we need to see deeper than just that literal historical story. And we need to look at a truth that is sitting within it. And so we need to look at the character of Jesus that is being displayed through that story another layer deeper. Uh, we actually need to look at the metaphor that we are finding in the story. Now for millennia, Christians have reflected on the literal story that I've just run you through and they've held it amongst the story of Israel, this bigger story of the people of God, and they've grounded it in the language of those people. And deeper truths have emerged that are far greater than just that surface level of that story of some man being killed on a cross. Now, a great example of those deeper things comes from our reading today. As we've heard from John's Gospel uh, in John 1 verse 29, John the Baptist called Jesus the Passover lamb who comes to take away the sins of the world. So was Jesus literally a lamb? <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Here, here we find ourselves in the work of metaphor. John the Baptist is tying the work of Jesus symbolically to that of the work of the lamb in the temple. The lamb that was a sacrifice. The sacrifice that atoned for sin. Making the way for God's redemptive work to be done in Israel. 
Jesus was, like that lamb, going to sacrificially atone for the sins and make a way for God's redemptive work to be done in all of the world for the rest of history. Now, John's declaration of this is very early on in the ministry of Jesus, well before he was anywhere near the Easter event. It's right at the start of his ministry. So for him to make that claim and use those threads and tie them together, it's a pretty big moment in the scriptures. John the Baptist is prophetically, he can see something coming, something that as the reader, we then read John's gospel and we can hold that idea in our minds as we read the gospel. And then as we get to this bit, where we um, get to the Passion Week of Christ. We can see this lamb that is slain in the temple sacrifices, this, this lamb that for generations and generations the people of God had been sacrificing to atone for their sins and stand rightly with God. So, so you could read through the story and you can hold that metaphor. And when you get to see Jesus at Passion Week, John the Baptist's title, Passover Lamb, boom, fits right there. And it all takes on a richer understanding. Which brings me to another reading from today. The longer one. And it's one not before the Easter event, but post-Easter. In that book of Revelation, in chapter 5, John, this time John of Patmos, is using the Lamb title over and over again. He uses it nearly 30 times, over and over again. This image of Christ and his vision of that of a lamb. And in chapter 5, we see the entry point for this lamb idea. Firstly, God as the creator has a scroll and he asks if there's anyone who is worthy to come and open it. And no one is. And John, as the one who is having the vision, starts to weep because no one, no one can come and open it. And he is told, do not weep. And the other figures in the vision say, look, there is a lion who has conquered. He has used the image of a lion, that of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The association here is the association of victory. A lion is victorious. And then John doesn't actually see a lion. He sees a slaughtered lamb. It's so confusing, I know, but stick with me here. It is a lion-like lamb. It's a victorious lamb. The other creatures of the vision start to cry out, worthy. Take the scroll, open its seals, slain, paying in blood. You've bought men and women. You've bought them back from all over the earth. You've bought them back for God. You've made them a kingdom, priests for our God, priest kings to rule over the earth. And they go on and they say further, the slain lamb is worthy to the one on the throne, to the lamb. Those are from the message translation. They worship this lamb, this one who has done this and has been worthy to receive all worship of all creation. They've done something mighty and valuable. And what is that something? The sacrifice that it made. This lion-like nature of its victory over death and over separation. Now, if you were to think about all of this literally, it doesn't make sense. And so this is where we need to grow up in our reading of Scripture. And we need to mature in our handling of the metaphors and the symbols that are anchored in literal events. See, John of Patmos, he is writing here in a multi-dimensional symbolism packed with metaphor. 
It's disorienting. I mean, your head's probably been spinning from what I've just been saying for the last three or four minutes. And it takes work to even get ourselves in as a reader to see this. And that's the kind of point here. This um, apocalyptic nature of this writing, it's meant to thicken up our view of reality. It's meant to jolt us into seeing life differently. It's a powerful literary device for conveying vision in the worst case scenario way. And it's a vision that is meant to draw us to something, to worship. It's not a prediction of the future. It is meant to draw us to a greater reality of what God has achieved through Christ's work at Easter. Because we become what we worship, don't we? So we must become what we see. John wants us to see this. Jesus Christ, that crucified man, he is much more than that literal historical moment. He is the lion-like victorious lamb. These are the metaphorical symbols that can be outworked and applied to the literal Easter story of Jesus. And it gives us a greater imagination for seeing these literal events as part of a larger activity. This hybrid of ideas is, is tricky for us to grasp in our literal Western conditioned minds. So we must work and allow them to sink in deeper. So amongst the chaos of sin, and the broken, fallen creation, Christ is crucified as the lion lamb, the victorious sacrifice. Just let that image get your imagination going as we start thinking about Easter. Um, St. Augustine, he wrote this. He said, why a lamb in his passion? Because he underwent death without being guilty of any iniquity. And why a lion in his passion? Because in being slain, he slew death. And why a lamb in his resurrection? Because his innocence is everlasting. And why a lion in his resurrection? Because everlasting also is his might. He endured death as a lamb, but he devoured it as a lion. Uh, N.T. Wright, he says of these two images, he says this, And now we come to one of the most decisive moments in all of Scripture. The lion is the symbol both of ultimate power and of supreme royalty. While the lamb symbolizes both gentle vulnerability and through its sacrifice, the ultimate weakness of death. But the two are now being fixed together completely and forever. And from this moment on, John, and we are his careful readers, are to understand that the victory won by the lion is accomplished through the sacrifice of the lamb and in no other way. But we are also to understand that what has been accomplished by the Lamb's sacrifice is not merely the wiping away of sin for a few people here and there, but the victory won by the Lamb is God's lion-like victory. Through his faithful Israel in person, through his obedient humanity in person, over all forces of corruption and death, over everything that would destroy and obliterate God's good, powerful, and lovely creation. Now, in this moment, we clearly see the victory of God. And this is how God has conquered the chaos of death and brokenness. It's through Christ, this lion lamb, who is making all things new. And that is how it all started. On a cross, a victorious revolution began over sin and death. A sacrificial and merciful atonement for the sake of the world. This is how God placed himself 
in the chaos. Now I want to finish today back on that cross with a second piece of art. This time, this one is from French painter James Tissot and it's entitled What Our Lord Saw From The Cross. Here it is. What a view from the perspective of the crucified Christ. You know, see down the bottom there? These are Christ's feet. And there's a woman there, most probably Mary Magdalene. And look at the faces of the various people looking at him. Some are in mourning and despair. Some are smug and they're feeling a sense of achievement that he's up there. Some are oblivious to yet another criminal on a cross. And there are those who are the crowd standing at that distance, looking from afar, watching another display of Rome's punishment. And there are those who are his family, feeling his pain as their own and begging for his suffering to be over. And next to them, next to the family, is John, John the Beloved, the only disciple to be found with him in his final moments after the rest had fled or hidden. And there is one centurion up there in the corner who is in red. He's not jeering, he's not joining in, but instead he seems to have seen a deeper reality. Surely this man was innocent, he seems to be thinking. Now, it's a powerful perspective, isn't it, to be considering the first person point of view of God being crucified. And I wonder, if you were to put yourself into Tissot's scene here, which face would you be? Would you be close to his feet or would you be far in the crowd? Would you be smiling and smug or would you have been the, um, those with the tears drenched on your cheek? Would you have cared? Now Tissot, the artist, is drawing us into see something here. He is drawing us to this dynamic of beholding, of looking, of setting our gaze. It's not that Jesus has come into the chaos, but that he is in it. And he beholds us in it. Now God saw that day those who were around his cross. And today he sees you and he sees me as we gather around his cross too. And this is what he has done then and this is what he is doing today. He has enacted the work of atoning your sins and my sins and making a way for us to become a new creation in him. And as Christ looks at you, he looks as the suffering lamb who has submitted himself in love. He sacrificed that you may know love, true love, submitted not in power that is a sword, but power that was service. And he looks as the victorious lion enacting in righteous power against the chaos of sin in every one of us and the effect of the sin in the world. And power that was in its own way upside down. It was not displayed by his own might and violence or in retaliation, but it was in humility through the violence done to him and through the atoning work of absorbing the sins of the world for all of history. And so to finish those words from John again, behold, the lamb who has come to take the sins of the world away. Look. God, who has come into the chaos to fix it. May you today not just see the chaos, but may you see him in it, at work, powerfully through his cross. May you behold the victorious lamb.